Hey, everybody. What's up, guys? Good morning, everyone. I get excited about uh, the shoeboxes because I have a cheat code. I have kind of foot problems, so I have to buy shoes pretty regularly. And I also have ginormous feet, so I have the best boxes. And I have lots of boxes to pack. So I love Samaritan's Purse. It's awesome. And it's great to have that cheat code. My name is Will, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm excited. I got excited about this like a week ago to preach on this. And that is a little bit scary for me. Jack does this every week. He works so hard. He writes a sermon for you guys every week. And it's like, you can't compare it to birthing a child. But it is like a lot of work. It's really important. And it's really good. And I, when I know that I'm going to have to preach, it's like weeks. And like I'm thinking out, like, what can I talk about? What can I talk about? But this time, God was just kind of holding it off. And, but last week, during Jack's sermon, I finally knew what I wanted to to go over with you guys today. I knew what I wanted to share. So I'm really excited about this. It's the story of Balaam. And it's in the book of Numbers. Uh, we're going to kind of focus in on 22 to 25. But every story has a setup. You, have to, you can't just look at a little part of a story and get the whole picture. So we're going to go through a little bit of the setup of the book of Numbers leading up to the story of Balaam. This adds a lot of color and a lot of life uh, to a really cool part of Scripture. Numbers kind of gets a bad rap because there's some censuses in it and there's some laws and rules and stuff like that. But if you look at the stories as a trace through, it's really, it's really interesting. So Numbers really focuses on the time from when Israel leaves Sinai, Mount Sinai. They get the law from God. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the law from God. The people go crazy. They make a golden calf. They worship the golden calf. Not good for them. It's a bad deal. And uh, Moses comes back down, sets them straight, and then they get ready to leave and go from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And they're, they're headed there. They're headed to go take the land that God gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God promised them. So that's what this book is about. It's about their wilderness journey. Um, so it, re- it shows a lot of... Uh, the value of faith, uh, disobedience, what that looks like, obedience, um, it, it traces all those things. And this transition is a big deal for the Israelites. They're going from a place they've been for 400 years, and they're moving to a completely new place. They're getting to leave slavery behind. They're, all these cool transitions are happening to them. And this is a really defining moment in their history. This transition is really defining. It's so big. Um, they... They get to a place in Numbers 10 where they, or in Numbers 7, sorry, they consecrate the tabernacle. So this is God's mobile house where he sets up, where his glory rests, and they get to consecrate this. So they've, they've got the law, they've consecrated the tabernacle or their place of worship. They are just like, it seems to be heading up. And now they're getting ready to leave Sinai for the promised land. This is just like, it's going to be great. Okay, they are just, this is going to be great. And that lasts not one, not two, but three whole days before they give a problem for themselves. They, for th- three days, it's going well, and then they start to complain. They say, why don't we just go back to Egypt? This is ridiculous. Why are we setting out on this journey? They literally just got the law from God. They consecrated the, the tabernacle, and they're headed out to the promised land three whole days. That's all it takes them. And we're going to see this, this pattern 
repeat itself throughout Numbers. So three whole days, uh, the people are mad. God sends a fire around the edge of the camp. kind of scares them a little bit. But then, not the people this time, it's the leaders that grumble. So there's three leaders of the people of Israel during this time. There's Moses, his brother Aaron, and their sister Miriam. And they're leading the people of Israel across to the promised land. And Aaron and Miriam come against Moses and they start griping at him. Like, why do you, why are you like the leader above us? Like, God's, God's doing uh, stuff through us too. And if we kind of see uh, the golden calf as Aaron's failure, this is Miriam's failure. That she actually, so God calls them all three to the tabernacle, calls Aaron and Miriam forward, and Miriam become, gets leprosy. And she has to go outside of the camp. Now she gets cl- cleared of it, and she gets to come back in. But this is kind of where we see her fail. And don't worry, Moses won't get left out either. He'll fail later. Uh, then Numbers 13 comes up, and this is the story of the spies. The people of Israel send spies into the land of Canaan. They send 12 spies. And these people are going to see, is this a good land? And really, they should already know. God told, told them it was going to be a good land. God told them they were going to have it. But they send out these spies. And the spies come back. And all the spies agree, this place is great. This is wonderful. But 10 of the 12 say, but we can't do anything about it. Those people there are too strong. We do not trust God to give us that, that uh, land. And so 10 of them come back with disbelief. And, and the people believe them and follow them. And what happens to the 10 spies? Uh, well, actually, what happens right before that is they start to decide to grumble against Moses again. They're like, this guy, he led us out here. We can't take these people. They start, they say, we're going to replace Moses as our leader and we're going to head back to Egypt. So again, they're grumbling and complaining. And God brings a plague on them and the 10 spies who didn't believe uh, die in that plague. And then God says, because you didn't believe me, you're going to wander in this wilderness for 40 years. And that's where we're going to see the rest of our story with numbers happen, is in this wandering time in the wilderness. So the people go out and they think, no, you know what? That God didn't mean that. We're going to go try to win the land anyways. We're going to try to go in and fight a battle. And they lose horribly. They're just not getting it. They're just not getting it from God. And then another big rebellion happens. This rebellion is called Korah's Rebellion. And this rebellion, and later we'll read about Moses striking the rock, and Balaam, who we're going to talk about, all three of those rebellions are even mentioned in the New Testament. They're such a big deal. They're such just a bad, a bad idea. So in Numbers 14, Korah, he's of the, of the kind of the priestly group, and they get a whole bunch of men together, and they say, God is in us just like he's in you. They say that to Moses. So we want to be able to, to lead the people too. We want to be able to do what we want to do. And God's not happy about that. He gets 250 men that are against Moses and they come. And then there's actually these families too that are against Moses. They don't come. And God actually opens up the earth like a sinkhole. And some of the people fall in and then he burns up those 250 with fire. He's just not happy about it. They are rebelling, rebelling, rebelling. And God is trying to put a stop to it. Now we're getting close to Numbers 20, and this is getting closer to the center part of, central part of our story. And in Numbers 20, we see the death of Miriam. She dies in the beginning, and right after that is where we have the story of Moses striking the rock. The people are grumbling yet again. They're just complaining and whining. In our house we say, uh, whining doesn't get you what you want. 
and I think that is inspired by the Bible. So we tell it to our kids all the time, like a broken record. And uh, the people grumble again against Moses. And they don't have water. And they're not trusting God to provide it. So Moses goes and prays, and God says, I will provide it. I'll give you a solution. He says, go out, speak to the rock. Uh, but Moses is just fed up with this point, and he goes out and he strikes the rock in anger. And this is the point where Moses and Aaron themselves are told, you will not enter the land. You're not going to be able to enter either. So all this older generation that rebelled, 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 they're not going to get to enter the land. And now you, Moses and Aaron, are not going to get to enter the land either. And if you want to read about it, there's a really cool kind of train of scripture. If you read uh, Hebrews 3 and 4 and Psalm 95, and then uh, it actually happens here in Numbers 20, or there's an account of it in Exodus 2. You can read all those together, and it's really cool. You see the different way God talks about his rest and how he's trying to take his people to his rest. And don't be bitter. Don't grumble and complain like these people. Well, at the end of Numbers 20, now Aaron dies. People are starting to die off that are not going to be allowed to enter the promised land. And uh, they take Aaron up on a mountain, Moses and Aaron's son, and they transfer the priesthood to Aaron's son, Eleazar, and then Aaron dies. And you would think that people would, by this point, get it. But they don't. They win a small victory over a group of Philistines. And then... You would think that would start like a positive trajectory. Like, hey, we had a little victory. Like, we're headed into the promised land. This is going to be great. And they promptly grumble again. They just complain again. They, uh, they, they complain about being in the wilderness and not in Egypt. All the good things they had in Egypt and all, all just the, the lame stuff that's in the wilderness. They just complain again. And God sends poisonous snakes out among them. And uh, the people start dying from the poisonous snakes. And Moses builds a bronze snake. And if you look at the snake, you're saved from snake bite. Kind of a cool, miraculous way for God to deliver them. So God, every time they rebel, he figures out a way by his grace to just draw them back in. And that's where we come up to the point right before the story of Balaam. We get two victories that Israel... uh, and, it, and this is like the, two, the first time they really string like two victories together. Not just one and then failure. This is two. And they, they're just small parts of the story, but they're really important. So Israel is actually not trying to fight this first group that they come up against. They're trying to just go through. They're like, just let us through. We're going to go through on Highway 50. We're not going to go to Quick Shop. We're not going to go to Dillon's. We're not going to steal your fuel points. We're not going to do anything to mess up your town. We just need to get through. We're on our way to the promised land. We just need to get through your area. Just let us pass. And the people say, no. God doesn't like that. And so they go out and fight this group, the Amorites, and they defeat them. Next, God tells Moses uh, to go against uh, King Og of Bashan. He comes against them and God says, you're going to win. Go out and fight. So all these ups and downs in the wilderness seem to be melting away. They're finally having, stringing together some success. This would be like a team going 5-0 finally for a season. Some of you know who that is. Uh, Anyways, uh, so they're finally stringing together some success. And it's really good. It's starting to look good. Maybe they've started to conquer some of those, you know, just bad cycles that they keep finding themselves in. This is a lot of setup. Uh, for just a story, but imagine them actually living it. This is 
This is 400 years of slavery. This is traveling through the wilderness. This is, imagine trying to not just be in this group of people, imagine trying to lead this group of people. I think you would just want to give up over and over. But finally now, they have two victories, and they're on the doorstep of the promised land. God's grace has been so huge. And as we get into the story, we'll see it get even bigger. God's grace is just going to be even bigger. So, the story. Israel's on the doorstep of the promised land, and this is the whole point of them leaving Egypt. God actually fulfilled one of his promises. So this, by this point, Israel is about 600,000 people. And God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'll make a great nation out of you. He did that in Egypt while they're in 400 years of slavery. Now, his next big promise is to put them in the promised land. So the whole point of leading Egypt is to come right here where they're at on the doorstep of the promised land. This is the whole point of his covenant with Abraham. So Israel's there. And we're going to read in Numbers 22, 1 through 6 about what happens when they get there. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were so many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, another group, this horde will now lick up All that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. Not a common phrase we use anymore. Basically, they were going to win and wipe us out, right? So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite us. If there were 600,000 people showing up to Newton, we would like be concerned about what was going to happen, right? Perhaps I, shall come, I, perhaps I shall come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them for the land, for I know that he whom you bless is, plead, is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. So now we are to the, to the story, to the prophet of Balaam. Who is Balaam? So he's well-known and respected. This land where he lives is about 350, 400 miles away from Balak and Israel and this kind of developing story. He's way away. But he's famous for whom he blesses, he is blessed, and whom he curses, curses is cursed. Um, they know about him even in this distant land. And Balak wants to bring him out to, to help him with his problem. Israel had no real beef with Moab. Um, maybe like that other group, the Amorites, would have just passed through. Um, but they had just defeated the Amorites. They just had these victories, and Moab was concerned. Actually, Moab was a tribe that came from one of the grandsons of Lot, Abraham's brother. So they, by all accounts, would have known about this promise to Abraham. And if they knew that these were Abraham's people, they, they probably should have been friendly to them, not tried to attack them. Also, who is Midian? So Moses' wife comes from Midian. When Moses kills an Egyptian while he's in Egypt, he flees to Midian, and he marries a Midianite. These people should also, they had, uh, you know, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is the one who uh, tells Moses, hey, set up elders to help you judge all the people. They had contact back and forth between these two tribes. Maybe even some of the people in Midian knew who Moses was. These people did not have to be uh, antagonistic toward Israel, but that's the path they chose. They knew, the, they knew the news of Israel winning these battles along the way, and they were just in fear, um, and they were trying to do something about it. 
One interesting thing about Balaam is he knows God's name. In the original Hebrew, in this part of this section, uh, the first time is in Numbers 22.8, but all throughout when Balaam is talking about God, he uses God's covenant name. He uses Yahweh for God. He knew who God was. Balaam had some experience with God. We don't know exactly how much or how little, but he had some experience. So now we're really starting to narrow, narrow down on Numbers 22. So Balak calls for Balaam to come. This famous prophet, come, come help me. Come help me curse this people. Balaam at first, though, refuses because he says, God, should I go with him? And God tells him no. And if God tells you no once, you should probably listen that once. Because what happens is Balak sends the people back again to try to convince Balaam to come. And this time, it seems like Balaam kind of wants to go. And he asks God again, even though God had already told him, no, you're not going to curse these people. And this time, God kind of begrudgingly gives in to Balaam's request and lets him go with Balak's princes or whoever he's trying to send. And this is where the famous story of Balaam's donkey talking happens. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but anytime an animal talks, you should listen. Last night at Fall Family Fun Day, the little potbelly pig smelled the beautiful roasted pork over here, and he was making all kinds of noise. Did not like it, okay? He was not happy about it. And this is actually, there's three times in the Bible when an animal speaks. The first is in the Garden of Eden. The serpent uh, convinces Eve to eat the fruit that, that she wasn't supposed to eat, Adam and Eve. Convinces, her to, convinces them to do that. The second time is this instance where a donkey talks to Balaam. And the reason the donkey speaks is because Balaam is dead set on going, and he's traveling down the path, and the donkey sees an angel. God's frustrated at Balaam, and he sets an angel in the path. And the donkey sees it, even though Balaam doesn't, and the donkey moves over to try to get out of the way and kind of rubs Balaam's foot against the wall. This happens three times where the donkey tries to get out of the way, and Balaam every time just beats the donkey. He's just angry. Finally, the donkey speaks and says, Have I ever been a bad animal to you. Have I ever been a bad donkey? And he's like, no, and now we're talking about it. This is crazy. Uh, anyway, so Balaam's donkey talks. And any time that happens in scripture, you should take notice. The third time it happens is in Revelation 8.13. There's an eagle that flies above and says, whoa, whoa, bad things are coming. Watch out. Um, that's the third time an animal speaks. So we're, we might be kind of desensitized to that because of cartoons and all that stuff. I, I'm sure a lot of us wonder, like, what does our dogs, what, what would our dog tell us if we could just talk to them? Um, but in the Bible, every time it happens, bad things are coming. Uh, and what this makes me think of is with my own kids, if we are headed somewhere that's going to be super fun, and I don't want to miss out on the fun. I don't want my kids to miss out on the fun. I don't usually talk to Izzy about it, but I look straight at Malachi and I say, Buddy, this is going to be fun. But if you don't listen, if you run off, if you don't listen to mom and dad, we're going to have to go home. And this seems like what God is doing with this angel to Balaam. He's saying, Listen, I told you, you can't speak anything I don't tell you. He's giving him a firm, shaking warning. Like, listen, it's time to pay attention. Um, so Balaam does travel back, and him and Balak meet. And we see that in Numbers 23. They get together, and right away they get together and make a sacrifice. They set up seven altars, and they sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. This is a lot of work 
that they're going through to try to curse Israel. They're not just like, you know, throwing a dart at the dartboard saying, oh, I hope we curse Israel. They are really investing in getting this done. In Numbers 23, after they set up these altars, they're trying to get a curse on Israel. At least that's what Balak is hoping for. Balaam says this in Numbers 23, 18 through 23. Balaam proclaimed this poem. Balak, get up and listen, son of Zippor. Pay attention to what I say. God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed received a command to bless. Since he has blessed, I cannot change it. He considers no disaster for Jacob. He sees no trouble for Israel. The Lord their God is with them. And there is rejoicing over the king among them. God has brought them out of Egypt. He is like the horn of a wild ox for them. There is no magic curse against Jacob and no divination against Israel. It will now be said about Jacob and Israel, what great things God has done. And this is finally starting to look up for Israel. They've had two victories, significant victories over their enemies. And now they have this other enemy that's trying to curse them. And instead of a curse, it turns into this awesome blessing. This blessing of God's going to do great things for them. God's going to make it happen for them. All this stuff. We are finally seeing like this really good upward trajectory with Israel. This is starting to get good for them. But Balak's not happy. He's not satisfied. So they move to another mountain. He is determined to try to get this done. They set up seven more altars. They sacrifice seven more bulls and seven more rams. So they're trying this again. But instead of a curse, in Numbers 24, we see they get another blessing. Numbers 24, 3-9 says, And he proclaimed this poem, The oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of a man whose eyes are opened, the oracle of the one who hears the sayings of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwellings, Israel. They stretch out like river valleys, like gardens beside a stream, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedars beside the water. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by abundant water. His king will be greater than Agag, and his kingdom will be exalted. God brought him out of Egypt, and he is like the horn of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations and gnaw their bones. Enemy nations are not going to come out well. He will strike them with his arrows. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. So again, they try this whole elaborate scheme. I don't know if they move those same seven altars, if they just make them new on another hill. They are really invested in getting this done. And again... Israel gets a blessing. Now, Balak is mad. He's going through all this work, all this time, all this expense. You know, Balaam didn't bring these animals along with him to sacrifice. This is all happening at Balak's expense. And so in Numbers 24, 10 through 14, then Balak, we read, that then Balak became furious with Balaam, struck his hands together, kind of like the Hulk doing his Hulk thing, and everything flies and breaks out in front. I summoned you to put a curse on my enemies, but instead you have blessed them these three times. Now go to your home. I said I would have rewarded you richly, but look, the Lord has denied your reward. Balaam answered Balak, Didn't I previously tell the messengers you sent me? If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not go against the Lord's command to do anything good or bad of my own will. I will say whatever the Lord says. Now I'm going back to my people. But first let me warn you about these, what these people will do to you in the future. 
And so Balaam hears from God and speaks one more time, and he speaks about all the bad things that are going to happen to those countries, or those nations that are in where Israel is supposed to, to come in and take it. Speaks all the bad and that Israel is just going to win, that Israel is going to win. And Balaam seems to just go home. Faithfully throughout this whole thing, Balaam just speaks the word of the Lord. Whatever God tells him to speak, he speaks. Uh, but, like every good story, there's a twist. And the twist comes uh, because it looks like at this point God's blessing is unstoppable. God's grace to this stubborn, fickle people is amazing. He just keeps loving them and keeps bringing them closer to the promised land. But with the twist, we see that Israel is going to fail again. Numbers 25, 1 through 3, says, While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to worship their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. They're up on this awesome upward trajectory. They have these battles that they win. They get these awesome blessings from this, from this random prophet. And then they just fall off the map. They just utterly fail. This is the first time we learn about the false god Baal in the Bible. It's the first time we hear about him. And Baal's going to plague the people of Israel throughout their time in the promised land. So this is the slide uh, from last Sunday. And when I read this slide, I knew I wanted to talk about Balaam uh, this Sunday. Uh, the slide reads, it's Revelation 2, 19 through 21, and it says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to re repent. But she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. So this is the twist. This is the rest of the story. I grew up listening to Paul Harvey. Uh, I was too young to listen to it then, but I loved it. My, it was like a religion with my grandpa. When Paul Harvey came on, it was time to listen. And whether you're not, you know who Paul Harvey is, what he would do is he would tell you a, a lot of interesting facts, but he would withhold who it was that was doing these things. And Balaam is actually the punchline, like a Paul Harvey rest of the story. In the same passage that, as the one we just read, in Revelation 2, further up, we read uh, in verse 14, But now I have a few things against you. You have some, some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak. Remember the guy who hired Balaam? Or Balak, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In Numbers, we just see that they go from these blessings to failing. But here in Revelation, we learn that it was actually Balaam who taught the Moabite king how to get Israel. They couldn't curse them. Through all their work and effort, they could not curse Israel. But they knew, whether Balaam knew through his exposure to God and God's laws, however he knew, he knew that he could get Israel to curse themselves. And the way to do that was through sexual immorality. This is how he gets them. He can't, through all of his efforts, through seven bulls, seven rams, seven altars, all that stuff, none of that works. But Balaam teaches Balak that if you get them to commit sexual immorality, God will curse them. They will curse themselves. And that's exactly what happens. So a plague comes upon the people. 
after that, and 24,000 of them die. Um, Moab was to blame for not helping Israel. Uh, when Israel showed up, they didn't have to fight with them. And then they were blame, to blame for getting them to commit sexual immorality. They used this to get them to curse themselves. Psalm 106, 24 through 31, kind of gives a wide-angle lens view of this story. It says, Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise or in God's promise. They murmured in their tents, they whined, and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. And he would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, this, this exact story, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Then they provoked the anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. This passage highlights how, how long Israel didn't, they didn't trust God's promise. They murmured, they grumbled, they yoked themselves. Even though the Midianites worked hard to get Israel to curse themselves, the people knew better, but they still joined in. Balaam succeeded, not through all these great acts of divination. He succeeded in getting them to curse themselves with sexual immorality. And there's a warning in this to us. Sexual sexual immorality is still a sharp tool for the enemy. Often we make conditions when we're talking with God. Maybe if my church was better, if my pastor was taught me better, if my family taught me more, if my family was better, if God had told me what not to do or what to do, if I had seen a miracle or an angel, then I would have obeyed God or known what to do. Balaam had access to all these things. The Israelites had access to all these things. And they still failed. And that's the warning to us. We have access to so much. We have, I mean, we can run around with, I could have five Bibles running around with, you know, read the Bible every five minutes. It would be amazing. We have access to all this stuff, but we still fail. We still have it in us to fail. Heterosexual immorality is dangerous. Just like in this story, we've been talking a lot about other kinds of immorality lately, but we can't just assume that we're all good because we're in a heterosexual marriage that is going reasonably well. The enemy is coming after us with immorality as well. And we have to have a response to this warning. We We have to take a stand. With all this danger, with the enemy coming after us full force, the statistics of people that are sexually abused is super high. The statistics of people who commit sexual immorality through things like pornography, for women it's, it's, it's a majority, and for men it's a staggering majority. The enemy is still using these things to come after us. So what is our response? Our response needs to be to run. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 1 Corinthians just means run means run. It means get away when you can. Whether in action or in temptation, you have to be get ready to get away as fast as you can. And really, in this, community is key. Having people that you love you, that care about you, that can encourage you during these times, that is so key. We cannot do that. Do, we cannot face this struggle on our own. Isolation is the enemy's great tool to keep us isolated. Also here at Grace, we have a ministry like Celebrate Recovery, 
Uh, we're working with five other churches here in Newton, um, and we have it for lots of reasons. If you've been hurt by someone, if you've experienced pain or trauma, that's a great place to come. It's not just for addiction. But if you're dealing with any kind of sexual temptation, it's a great place to come. We also have, even more focused, we have what's called the Conquer Series. There are men here at our church running the Conquer Series, and this is designed to help anyone overcome any kind of sexual addiction. But our response is not just to run. It's not just the negative of what we shouldn't do. Our response also has to be on the positive side. 1 Corinthians 6 also says in verse 20 that we, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Don't just flee, but also glorify God. And that demands uh, that we aren't just supposed to avoid inappropriate sexuality, but we're supposed to embrace the positive and healthy side. Fleeing the negative isn't the whole answer. We have to have a positive response. We're supposed to glorify God with our body, but our bodies are broken by sin. That's why we get sick. That's why our flesh pushes us to sinful desires. But when we believe in Jesus, he makes us a new person. And then we have the capacity to glorify God with our bodies. We have to have a positive response. Uh, uh, Sexual, sorry. Sexual satisfaction is not the end goal, but glorifying God is. So I had a friend at Moody, and his name was Dan Morgan. You guys don't know Dan Morgan, but he loves to fix up old cars, and so I love Dan Morgan. I think he's super cool. But he wrote this really cool thing uh, and posted it on Facebook. It was super long, but I just wanted to highlight this really short part because I feel like it so uh, fits with the, with the cultural battle we're in. He says, sex is not a right. And sexual satisfaction is not a requirement for a happy marriage, even though our culture tells us it is. When we make sexual satisfaction, though that's not something that's bad, but when we make it the goal, then we elevate sex above glorifying God with our bodies. And it's subtle, but it will always lead us off course. We have to have, also in our positive response, we have to have that sexual morality is the goal. Any of us uh, who have read the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 would look at these fruits in our daily lives, just in normal everyday behavior. We want to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We want to live those out in our daily life. But these also fit really well with a good picture of what sexual morality is, being patient, being kind, being good, being self-controlled. All of those things fit into a positive look of of healthy sexuality. Also, uh, Paul, uh, who wrote Galatians, the passage we just looked at, he also writes uh, about singleness. We have to also, in our positive view, validate singleness. Paul himself was single. He was an apostle. And he said uh, he, he didn't view singleness as second rate. He, and, and those of us who were married need to be careful to follow, follow Paul's example, not to look down on single people. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 8, Now as a concession, and he doesn't mean it's like a lessening, but he means this isn't a command. That's what he's trying to say. Not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. To the married and the widow, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. He doesn't call it less than, he calls it good. So we have to validate singleness. That is part of this positive view that we have to take on sexual morality. We also have to talk about these things. We can't ignore them. We can't let our kids figure out all of this stuff on their own. We have to teach them and train them what's good and what's bad. And that's one of the huge reasons why Jack is spending so much time uh, in our fall family focus to talk about this important topic. 
Everything is broken. And none of us, none of this is fun to talk about on our own. It's no fun in our families or our friend circles. But as followers of Jesus, we have to have something to hold on to. We know that Jesus is coming back to fix all the brokenness of the world and the brokenness inside each of us. Paul also writes in Romans 8, 18 through 25, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he writes that to his day, but it applies just as clearly to ours, that are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who, are, who have the first, first fruits of the Spirit, groan iteratively as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this, in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is God's great promise to us. All of creation is not happy with the brokenness that's in the world. And we are not happy with the brokenness that's inside of each one of us. But there is a hope. There is a hope uh, that God is going to come, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fix it all. And that's a great hope to hold on to. All of the cultural battle we are up against is painfully hard. Culture is going to keep coming for us, trying to teach our kids, trying to sway us. And in the end, the battle isn't going isn't to be. Uh, but in the end, the battle is not about the battle. It's about the gospel and a good relationship with God uh, for each of our hearts. The answer isn't only political action or more books on the topic. The answer is ultimately only the gospel, first and foremost. Are we preaching the gospel to our families? Are we preaching the gospel to our friends, to our brothers, to our sisters? This won't stop issues of gender or sexual temptation from infiltrating our lives, but it is the anchor that holds us to God himself. Um, there's nothing better uh, than to love Jesus and to wake up every day knowing that he cares about us and about our family and our friends. I went to school with Christopher Yuan, Christopher Yuan one of the books that Jack has out on the bookcase or bookshelf, uh, he wrote... And before I knew that he ever struggled with same-sex attraction, I knew that guy loved Jesus. And that, that is what is supposed to be the most important, the biggest thing in our lives. Jesus is better than anything else we can have or do, and nothing else will ever satisfy us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for caring about healthy sexuality. Thank you so much for caring about keeping us safe and keeping us away from sin. And God, we just pray uh, that you would just continue to give us uh, just ways to be together, to grow together, to challenge each other, to confess to one another. God, I just pray that our church would be a church of just really loving you and really helping each other uh, with these sin struggles that we all face. God, we love you so much for giving us this day, and we pray that as we go out, you would just embolden us and, and empower us to, to stand up for your gospel in a culture that, that just hates you. So God, we thank you so much for just being who you are, and help us in light of that to remember who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.